Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, I'm Dorian Linsky. We all have our shiny new pencil cases ready for this back-to-school edition. Let's meet the star pupils. Ian Dunt is a columnist for the eye, with a bright shiny apple for teacher. Hello Ian. <laughs> Hello. Uh, Catherine Burble singh is being touted as the government's new social mobility commissioner. Uh, she's a conservative fave who's currently in charge of what's been called the country's strictest state school. As previously said, underachievement by black pupils is due partly to the chaos of our classrooms and in part to the accusation of racism. Not racism, the accusation of racism. What is her version of social mobility likely to be? I think it's sort of broadly in line with what we've already seen from the government when you take this sort of idea of there is no such thing as structural racism. So once you get rid of structural explanations for things, what you're left with is this kind of humdrum authoritarian approach where we basically just need a bit more discipline. You'd have the same approach to crime, and indeed they do have the same approach to crime. Just there's no structural explanation. So it just comes down to coming down hard on people. Her strictness, which obviously fetishizes strictness in a way that we're kind of used to from conservatives, both in their personal lives and in their politics, is sort of very, it's very attractive to them. I imagine we're going to see a lot more of it from her. Alex Andreu is a political commentator. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden is trying again to make former Daily Mail editor Paul Dacre the new head of Ofcom. If at first you don't succeed, mm. just fix it and start again. Dacre was rejected by an advisory committee first time around on grounds of political bias, but Dowden has simply scrapped the process and started again, causing yep. more cost and delay. Now he is struggling to find anyone willing to soil their reputations by sitting on a new interview panel put together for the express purpose of rubber stamping the person who was previously rejected. There are a lot of Tories in this country. Why is the government so obsessed with getting Dacre the job? And one of them is someone who succeeded in the first round. Was that Ed Vasey? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the people who successfully went through all stages of the first round was former culture secretary for the Tories. It's not as if the other two are Ash Sarker and Len McCluskey, (laughs) is it? I mean, there are... (laughs) So I have to stop and wonder whether they want him in post or whether he wants the post. Because I have to say that in a chessboard that involves Murdoch and, you know, the the, uh, Rothermeers and Barclays and you know, people like that. I'm not sure Oliver Dowden is the largest piece on that board. I mean, God knows what he's got on whom. But actually, the question of who wants the position doesn't matter. The why is quite clear to me. There's a lot of people making noises about him wanting to punish the BBC and the Tories wanting him in place because he's got those those views on the BBC. To me, that's a red herring. The real thing coming down the line is the online safety bill, formerly the online harms white paper, um, which for the first time gives Ofcom responsibility for regulating internet. It has no such responsibility at the moment. So I think in the next 10 years, Ofcom will be the main battleground for how 
traditional media try to put a lid on alternative providers that are just online. And that is a battle where it makes sense why both the papers would want their own person in there and the Tories would want their own person in there. Why would the Tories mind who, you know, they love print so much? No, but print gives them heft. You know, they have the vast majority of the print press rooting for them. That influence is being eroded the more... Uh, online providers gain prominence and they want to make sure that they have some kind of controlling interest in that other um, alternative way of people getting their news. I, I think it's as simple as that. We'll see how that pans out. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello. A new Observer poll has found that majority of Northern Irish voters want a border poll to happen eventually, although only 37% want it in the next five years, which uh, I appreciate that kind of procrastination. They very much want to do this thing, but not yet. Meanwhile, ex-Labour Brexiter Kate Hoey has admitted on GB News that Northern Ireland was sacrificed to get Brexit over the line, which, of course, we all knew. Why has Northern Ireland dropped out of the headlines recently? Well, the EU was taking legal action against the UK for breaching the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it paused that action. That was a very generous action on the part of the EU. It paused it in late July, possibly because it didn't want to talk to David Frost during August and Brussels more or less shuts down in August anyway. So that might be part of the explanation. But in any case, it gave it a bit of time to, as they put it, de-escalate tensions. And as they would put it off the record for the UK to try and sort its shit out and (laughs) decide what it's going to do about the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that's why the heat has been off. But there's a grace period that expires for customs that expires in September. So the heat will very soon be back on again. Do you think that we will see uh, a referendum in Ireland in, say, the next 10 years? No, I think next 15, 20, maybe. That would make that would make more sense to me. It's it's entirely possible. But the fact that nobody really wants it back quickly, well, not only 37% want it in the next five years. I think that tells you that there's a feeling that Northern Ireland has been through, you know, is, is, is still struggling to come to deal with Brexit. It's still very volatile. No one wants to tip things over the edge right now. So I think it will come, but not yet. Yeah, it's a, it's a province that knows that there's such a thing as too much drama. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On this week's show, with Parliament returning on Monday, we'll discuss the potential repercussions of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and five things to look out for in the new session. Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're talking about Michael Gove's big night out and asking, is a shattered nation ready for the sight of politicians on the pull? If you'd like to support the podcast at no cost to yourself, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. We'd be very grateful. First this week, the war in Afghanistan has been declared over by the US with both American and British forces now out of the country. But drone strikes continue. One which targeted a would-be suicide bomber at Kabul airport also killed 10 civilians, including two two two-year-old girls. Ian, you've been watching Dominic Raab face the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. What did the beach boy have to say for himself? Oh, absolutely fuck all. So it's just this absolute wall of 
blather and evasion and truisms that once you kind of get the technique, it just become you just feel your heart start to shrivel up inside of your ribcage because you feel you you hear it from ministers all the time, right? Like they they know how to do media interviews, and he's probably the most grotesque version of this. Which is they know, you know, you go on Radio 4, you go on LBC, whatever, you've got six to eight minutes. That's not a lot of time to kill by just warbling on with an absolute load of bollocks. So they'll have a question. It's quite hostile. They say, I don't accept that at all. Then they'll use a bridging phrase. I mean, like, but, you know, taking it, you know, looking at it in the round or the other thing we haven't thought about. And then they just talk about whatever the fuck it is they want to talk about for what, two or three minutes an answer. Um, and they just eat up. The time. Now, this is the thing that sort of interviewers on radio stations, on TV shows find very frustrating. It's actually very hard to deal with, um, despite the amount of shit that people give them online. That's basically what Rob just tried to do for a 90 minute select committee hearing. So for, he basically filibustered his own foreign select committee hearing. He just went on and on and on dealing in truisms and generalizations and refusing to engage with even a trace element of specificity, up to and including being asked the question, on what day did you go on holiday? And he wouldn't even answer that. Yeah, the, but that thing, the, the bridging phrase, my daughter has been learning that you have to do that before you change the subject. So she just goes, speaking oh, of no. which, and then introduces oh, no. a new subject. Just How did you allow her to learn this? Speaking of which, <laughs> which, uh, which would allow her to uh, put on a creditable performance in front of a select committee, I think. That is brilliant. Was the questioning adequate, uh, confronted with this fiendish tactic? Like, um, who performed well? Did, did anyone uh, manage to sort of get through to him? Well, like Tom Tugendhat is the Tory chair um, of the committee, and he asked a lot of specific questions, got no answers in reply. Um, he, I think there's a lot to be gained in terms of emotional reassurance by just looking at the way that he looks at Rob, because he looks at him with a kind of cold fury <laughs> that sort of suggests that if only this problem could be solved as easily as one on the battlefield. <laughs> so at least there's that where you get the sense of his eyes communicate some of the outrage that you yourself feel looking at it. Um, Chris Bryant and Neil Coyle, both Labour MPs, very, very good. So was the SNP's uh, Stuart MacDonald. They didn't really, you know, there's only so much you can do. There was a crucial moment, which Rob gave away by mistake, really, where he talked about why it was hard to get British nationals out of Afghanistan. And what he ended up saying was, well, you know, the thing is, sometimes there's these families where one of them is a national, but some of the others haven't got the paperwork or we're not sure the paperwork's right. And what he meant by that was, we just wouldn't fucking take them. You know, that's the reason they're still there. And that there gives you, I think, a very good indication of the kind of moral decision making that was going on in government, even here, where they're thinking, right, well, it's papers first. You know, even with even as you've got these totalitarian sort of religious fanatics coming for these people, it's still no papers first, papers first. So you can at least try and get these scraps of sort of moral insight into the government's decision making, even while he tries to obfuscate on all the other matters. Even though you know that Rob himself in a crisis would be like Billy Zane in Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Billy Zane in climbing over children. Alex, the Defence Committee is launching its own inquiry into Britain's role in Afghanistan. The government insists that a report in 2014 gave answers to the key questions. Has anything important happened in Afghanistan since 2014 uh, that might raise new questions? There's loads that raises new questions, but don't bother asking them. 
Um, it's 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 genuinely a waste of time and money unless there is a change of government, because then all you will get is a government trying to defend its reputation rather than giving any genuine. You're just going to get hours and hours of what Ian was describing, of Dominic Raab sort of adopting this mock soft tone um, that sounds like a sort of an audio book of a fan fiction. Um, sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey for hours and hours and hours. And also, I think they're genuinely useless. This idea of trying to learn the lessons from things that went wrong. I would concentrate on the process. I would ask, how can we do this right in the future? Because in my view, when there is a crisis, too many people are swayed by sort of stirring oration and and they go okay let's go let's intervene let's send the army in when there's no real example unless you include very small uh, conflicts like Kosovo and Sierra Leone there's no real example where in a big country in a long-term way we left the place better than we found it and so I think I would uh, concentrate on the process I would concentrate on making sure that when a government wants to send a military intervention, they have to say how much it's going to cost, how long they expect it to last, and what are their clear objectives that will determine success. And then every time they need to change one of those things, they have to come back to parliament and ask for permission. I think only something like that will actually get to the heart of the matter. A sort of you know, sort of congressional committee like they have in the States where you have to get permission to go into a long-term military intervention. Um, backbench critics of the withdrawal and evacuation, like a Tom Tuggenhat and a mm. lot of the kind of ex-servicemen, um, have been holding Johnson's feet to the fire as well as Rob's. Do you think that that tension will persist even now this crisis has passed? Are they, have they sort of le- lost a certain amount of uh, faith I, I, look, I hope so, but I don't expect it to. The closer we get to a general election, the more hesitant people will be to rock the boat, I think. So I did an Oh God, What Else recently with Naomi about Tony Blair, uh, which got the universally warm response, you might imagine. <laughs> um, I mean, at, at this stage, do you hold anyone from previous governments responsible for the current mess? Does that oh, get us I mean, anywhere? No and all of them is the answer. It's not a partisan point. It goes back to what I was saying. There is basically a perverse incentive to take action because that gives political leaders a boost in the polls. And then there's the incentive after it's gone on for many years to get the troops out because that gives the political leaders a poll. So those two things mean we're constantly precipitously going into situations and then 10 years later pulling out. And, you know, if you look at the historical pattern, everything from the partition to Egypt to Malaysia to Hong Kong to Cyprus to Greece to Libya to Syria, we have a reputation for meddling to bad effect. And we need to change that reputation. And the only way to change that reputation is to look at the process by which we decide to meddle. To me, it's quite clear. Roz, one way in which the West does meddle without uh, putting boots on the ground, without uh, creating all of those complications, is using drone strikes, uh, which are, of course, always contentious. They're considered one of the biggest blots on Obama's record. Do you consider them a legitimate means 
of targeting terrorists of uh, of defence. The problem is that drones are operated in such secrecy. We don't really know who is targeted. We don't really know necessarily why. We don't always know what the results were, particularly if the drone strike was considered to be unsuccessful. Uh, we ought to know these things, but it's all opaque or secret. Talking of Syria, as we were doing earlier, back in 2015, there was quite a big controversy, which was because drones were used for the first time outside a conflict by David Cameron. He basically authorised their use. He didn't go to Parliament first. That was the source of quite a bit of criticism for him. Uh, He said that there was an imminent threat to the UK from the two terrorists in Syria that he was targeting. We've never really managed to establish whether that was true or not. But the fact is you you can target without parliamentary scrutiny without the kind of scrutiny that you would normally have if you went to war. And is the UK still doing a lot of uh, drone strikes off its own back? Yeah, but we don't know how many. I mean, we know that the UK has it has 10 reapers. That's what the drones we own are called. Uh, oh, there's, soon there are going to be about 20, 25 predators, which are the successor to reapers. Uh, they, they, live, they live in Lincolnshire, in uh, RAF Waddington normally, and to, unless they're flying ops in the Middle East. And we know that they've been used in the Middle East. We don't know exactly where, in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, and, of course, in Afghanistan. Mm. And... The MOD has its own guidance on this, which it doesn't really share very much, although it has said that they should not be launched unless there is a zero expectation of civilian casualties. But, you know, it's very easy to say that there is a zero expectation of civilian casualties if you're trying to take out a a couple of of terrorists. But all the evidence suggests that they aren't quite as precisely targeted as the MOD would like you to think. And in fact, Boris Johnson has in the past suggested that we've used drone strikes as payback. And that is in mm. massive contravention of international law, as you might as you might expect. But the international law around drones is not clear because, if you like, it's still it's still concerned with previous ways of waging war. What we do know is that Biden is very, very likely to carry on using them in Afghanistan. I mean, he basically said in this his speech this week, "We are not done with you yet." There's only one interpretation of that, really, given that he's not going to have boots on the ground there anymore. And the head of the RAF said they would be willing to help out. So we're going to be doing it too, basically. Well, there's this fantasy that I remember going back to the first Gulf War of ultra-targeted strikes. Back then it was airstrikes, now it's drone strikes. But as we just saw, that would be suicide bomber. If you're then killing toddlers at the same time. Well, something's up. Either it's not precise enough or essentially you can't use it against people who are probably clever enough not to go and stand in a, on their own mm. in a kind of an isolated clearing or, or and are likely to be surrounded by other people. Or have a truck full of explosives in an urban area. I mean, you know, it, it seems to me there's a risk there, right? You can't, you can't take out a truck full of explosives in an urban neighbourhood and guarantee you're not going to help anyone else. Ian, finally, some good news. Uh, former commando Penn Farthing has been evacuating animals from his Nowzad dogs charity. Initially, his private charter plane was blocked by the government with Defence Secretary Ben Wallace saying that he was not going to prioritise pets over people. The monster. Wallace also accused Farthing supporters of intimidating his staff and the Sunday Times published a threatening voicemail left by Farthing for one of Wallace's aides. Uh, what do you make of Mr Penn? Not much, man. Not much. I found this whole story 
I could barely, there were certain days where I could just barely look at it because I thought I was going to get so angry. I was going to start bursting my skin. It was just so deeply upsetting to me. And it's, and it's a relationship between him and his supporters, which is completely in sync. He knows the degree of outrage there is and push over animals. And he utilized it. He utilized it for a reason you can't hold against him for trying to get him and his staff and his animals out. Although when it came down to those three groups and only two could get through, you notice how quickly the staff were the ones that got sacrificed. And how did he manage to do that? By a bunch of people sitting here. We can't, there's no point. I'm not going to, I've been given more shit about this than I have for most other subjects on Twitter, including from lots of people who I apparently would normally agree with, given what seems to be on their bios. But like, there's no point like beating around the bush. Like they demonstrably care more about dogs than you do about brown people. I can't see any other basis upon which how someone could come to the conclusions that they've come to here. There is a real limit to the capacity and the resources and the attention that can be given to getting evacuees out. Now, because of the pressure that was dedicated towards cats and dogs, instead of the brown people who could have gotten out, if indeed we gave the remotest fuck about them. The whole thing seemed to be a spectacle of just the very worst, most sentimental and most sort of morally corrupted aspects of the British personality. And to end this period, I mean, it's been a bad few weeks anyway. It's been some of the worst weeks that we've seen in some time. To end it with that story just felt like the last smear on our character as we evacuated from Afghanistan. I don't have anything nice to say about it at all. Sorry, just complete outrage and disdain. That's fine. It's good. Good to end there. I have no. <laughs> I have no follow up. I was going to say, do you feel anything other than complete outrage and disdain? You've already answered that question. <laughs> anyway, at least the alpaca's gone. Next up, Parliament returns next week. We're going to break down five big issues on the government's plate. Roz, let's start with the drama. Uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are reportedly at odds over several issues, including the climate crisis, social care, levelling up and austerity. So they all come down to basically the same thing. Uh, Boris Johnson would like to spend more and Rishi Sunak would not. (laughs) Um, Not entirely, although that's a fair way of uh, putting it. I mean, Sunak has been historically more hawkish on things like lockdown. I mean, you may recall that there was a leaked letter in which he urged the UK to ease travel restrictions. And uh, Boris Johnson was apparently quite annoyed about that. But all through, he has been keen to open up. That hasn't always been clear to the public, but it is uh, nonetheless, he is, I think it's fair to say, more hawkish than Johnson over COVID. That's obviously becoming less of an issue as we've moved out of lockdown. But fundamentally over the spending and the risk of inflation, which he fears a lot, and any subsequent rise in interest rates and the con- what the consequences of that would be, he is worried about that as Chancellor. That's what Chancellors worry about. Uh, and of course, he doesn't want to raise taxes because that's not what Conservatives do. And you just cannot carry on spending money willy-nilly without doing that. And there are huge, huge, huge multiple pressures on public spending right now. So many things are wrong with this country. In particular, Johnson will have to let his northern MPs down. I mean, we're already seeing this with HS2 and the news that it probably won't go to Leeds and Sheffield after all. He's going to have to let down a lot of MPs in the north who are expecting large amounts of levelling up cash to be spent on them and aren't going to get it. Because it's funny, because if you're Labour, you kind of want Sunak to win um, so that you can oppose austerity, you know, rather than, you know, obviously flooding the north with cash. Um, 
But if you like the planet, you probably don't want him to win on the kind of, <laughs> oh, but addressing the climate crisis will be a bit expensive. Uh, so it's I'm, I'm torn. Um, that leaked letter that you mentioned uh, from Sunak made Johnson apparently consider demoting him to health secretary. Uh, poor old Saj. I just got here. She goes, yeah, I wouldn't take your coat off, mate. Um, that obviously didn't happen. But I mean, who do you think would win a popularity contest in the party and the country if they really went head to head? That's a fascinating question. I mean, they both suffered a dip in popularity after they tried to get out of self-isolation early this month, you may recall, and both their ratings went down at that point. Johnson's pay, uh, personal ratings are pretty low and Sunak's are currently higher. But it depends if the public mood is willing to embrace relative austerity again, you know, if we're in that place, which is basically what Sunak wants, or if it prefers the promise of massive public spending, which is what Johnson is seems to be pushing for. But on the other hand, if Johnson starts to look like a kind of lame duck PM who can't deliver on his promises, then Sunak could benefit because he looks like someone who's competent and reliable. Mm. I think it's going to come down to either of those. Alex, turning to number two. Let's take a reverse chart but rundown here. Number two, number, number two is the UK is hosting COP26 at the beginning of November. Should we get our hopes up? What could we hope could be achieved? <laughs> well, the answer to that is a uniform no. Well, no, obviously. but I mean, that's the, obviously the, the question of the podcast <laughs> that the podcast itself answers. <laughs> um, but like, what, what, is, what is doable at COP26? Um, look, obviously, we shouldn't get our hopes up because we have idiots in charge. However... In a, in a strange way, I think Biden's poor handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal may actually open a bit of a door because I think the, the section of the public that he's in trouble with at the moment that will worry him mo most is his base, uh, those sort of liberal metropolitan elite voters. And I think he needs to make them quite a big offering and make it soon, uh, throw them a bit of red meat. And I think an over and above what's expected showing at COP26 might just do that for him. I mentioned there that Sunak's rather short-termist argument that trying to get net zero will, will cost too much. Given uh, the summer of fire, terrifying headlines, the climate crisis bit of the Guardian homepage, which I, I can't read because <laughs> um, it makes me sad. Um, oh, I thought because you hadn't subscribed. <laughs> sorry, oh, sorry. no, I give, no, no, I, I give them my Guardian money. Guardian is free. Um, but yeah, yeah, like, I mean, it, I don't know. Is it is it getting to the point where that's kind of what well, we can't we can't do this because it will be expensive? It's just is just the public are not going to buy that. Obviously, a section of the public. I mean, don't well, give a shit. But okay, so overall. it depends who's selling it and how hard. Um, I suspect a large portion of the public will still be willing to buy it because they want to buy it. The truth is, and we have to face this going forward, that the small minority of very rich men in their 60s and 70s that control much of the media, that control much of, you know, industry, that control control much of politics, don't give a shit about what happens to the planet in 100 years' time. They want to pay low taxes now. And they want to pay low taxes now more than they want to do anything about the planet. They sound bad. They sound bad, don't they? Don't, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but that's the reality. And I think we won't make headway if we 
live in some sort of delusion that everyone at some point the evidence will be so overwhelming that everyone will be pulling in the same direction and guess they what? won't <laughs> no but guess what dealing with this stuff will always be expensive yeah and perhaps more expensive yeah. when you have to evacuate large yeah. parts of the coastline uh, Greta Thunberg has said she will only attend the conference if participants from poorer countries are fully vaccinated and able to travel. I mean, obviously, this is unusual circumstances. Can a conference like this have credibility if representatives from certain countries are excluded for a reason that exposes this sort of other failure of international cooperation? Yeah. Um, I suspect they will come up with some sort of mixed media fudge in the end where some people attend via Zoom and claim it as a victory because they will be saying, look, there's loads fewer people flying in and this is how we need to run this sort of conference in the future. So I think that's what's going to happen. It will go ahead and it will preserve its uh, sort of um, reputation by making a virtue out of necessity. Can we please can I please have a vaccine? No, but here's a Zoom link. <laughs> In last week, uh, we all talked about Brexit-related food shortages. Uh, new post-Brexit paperwork takes effect in October, and then another batch of checks in January. How much worse are things likely to get? Why? That's stuff that we're going to impose on stuff coming to us. That's essentially our side of the deal. Now, here's the thing: I'm not entirely sure that it will happen. There is push. I mean, you're already seeing it from the DUP to delay this stuff again. They've already delayed it before. It's perfectly possible that they will delay it once over. There's really very little incentive on the British side to do it when you can get away with delaying it without very many people noticing. So it's possible that we'll just get stuck in this permanent loop where we just keep on trying to push away our side of the deal. And incidentally, nothing else is uh, being imposed on stuff coming in. So I've had consignments in the last year that have come from Japan or Brazil or places like that, which would ordinarily attract some interest from HMRC that nothing, they, they literally just come straight to my door. So I think HMRC is so swamped, they're not even, they're not even imposing the tariffs on the stuff they're meant to be imposing them already, That's let alone doing new ones. It's good news for your ivory business. <laughs> it's... it's t- <laughs> Um, Ian, so just to be clear, is this, when we're talking about food shortages, is this a pincer effect? On the one hand, it's labor shortages like like HGV drivers and people that are meat processors. And then you've got supply chain disruption due to check. You've got two different things feeding into the same problem. Yeah. And of course, we can't forget the fact that we do also have the COVID effect. Um, so, for instance, you know, with HUV drivers, there's, it's hard to get people training to go into that job because of COVID. But that is not the entirety of the explanation as much as they try to pretend otherwise. We know that lots and lots, probably above a third of HUV drivers in the UK, uh, Europeans in the UK doing that job left. We also know that those in Europe who will be coming in are loath to do so because they sort of suspect it's going to get bogged down in paperwork and obstructions. So all of that happens at the same time. It's also the case, we have to keep on reminding ourselves of this, that they knew the fucking pandemic was happening when they decided to do this. I mean, they were warned at the time, you can ask for extensions. We shouldn't be doing this in the middle of a pandemic. It was a decision to combine two crises at the same time. 
And that was going to have these effects. They were told explicitly and over and over again at the time that would have these effects. And now here we are. It's having those effects. Well, the food and drink industry wants a special COVID-19 recovery visa to help fill half a million vacancies. Obviously, the government doesn't want to do that. They think that's politically unpopular and it's not getting Brexit done, etc., etc. Could COVID give them political cover to do something that does seem like it'd be rather helpful to the economy and get the food and drink industry off its back? It could, but I don't think that they'll take the opportunity. Because I think part of, part of what's so concerning about what we're seeing now is that it's happening when you have a government that is unable to admit the reason behind it. They can't say that it's because of Brexit, because of course that undermines the entirety of their mission statement to be in government in the first place. So instead, there's just a hole where an analysis of the problem would be. And that's not just them. I mean, Labour is still, even now, being very, very wet in the criticisms that it's making. And it doesn't really have to be. It's quite easy for Labour to say, you know, it's not about Brexit, it's about how you've done it. It's about your shoddy deal. There are ways of navigating the criticism so you're not about reopening the Brexit debate, but instead saying they fucked up the manner in which they conducted Brexit. But so with that kind of black hole in the middle of the debate, it's quite hard to imagine any policy solution, let alone one that's about increasing immigration to the UK, like taking on a firm hold in the way that the government responds to it. Alex, number four. Uh, But it's a three-part question. (laughs) Um, Three bills uh, passing through Parliament. Police crime and sentencing bill the Elections Bill and the Nationality and Borders Bill. Um, they have been described, including by you, as Trojan horse bills. Yeah. Uh, explain explain what you mean. So what happens is that 80% of the stuff in the bills is uncontroversial. Some of it is even very good. And then there's 20%, which is just truly evil, democracy-destroying shit. Um, and you can see that they're setting up the the PMQ response lines of the future. So looking at the policing bill, you know, it has higher sentences for um, rape uh, uh, convicts, but it also outlaws protests if they're noisy, Mm. which could include anything. And so you can see Johnson a year in the future saying, well, you voted against harder sentences for rapists that is what they're setting up if you resist it they will pin on you all the good stuff that's in the bill and say you voted against it Um, i'm going to come to ian on one of these but i want to ask you about the the other two what is the with the police crime and sentencing bill is it for you the most troubling bit is that surrounding the right to protest yeah or are, or are there other other well there, there's a lot of there's a lot of legislation that is seen as targeting the traveler and uh, mm. gypsy community which i think has not had the amount of scrutiny and focus that it deserves so there's a lot of stuff about moving people on from land and that is clearly clearly targeted at those communities um but yeah the the main um thing is this assault on you know peaceful protest the exclusion zone around Westminster is being made bigger and bigger and suddenly you have these provisions about noisy protests and you're going to end up in a situation where there are people sitting in Parliament that are literally separated from the people who are saying, don't do this in my name. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's bad stuff. Um, The elections bill has its second reading on September the 7th. 
aspects of it have been uh, described as voter suppression. Which bits trouble you and how might they affect the next election? Again, a lot of attention has been on the voter ID requirement, which I think is weird, personally speaking. Um, That's because I come from a country that has IDs and we take our IDs to vote. Um, And actually voting is compulsory in that they can't make you vote, but they can give you trouble if you try to renew your passport and you haven't voted. So it's stuff like that. It's strange to me that in a country where there isn't a system of identification, you're obliging people to take photo ID to vote because there are a lot of people who don't drive and don't have a passport. And I just don't understand what they're meant to do. So either bring in ID cards or don't insist on ID. Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. You have to either have a system where everyone has an ID card or you have to have a system where it's not required. You find some alternative way. Uh, It's a very 18th century fucking bill for a 21st century problem. They should be concentrating on making secure voting electronically a thing to increase enfranchisement rather than doing this stuff to decrease enfranchisement. Um, Ian, last one for you. There's a lot of current public sympathy for Afghan refugees um, as the government is trying to pass the Nationality and Borders Bill. Do you think that's going to influence, the public opinion will, will influence that at all? Or are they banking on the fact that actually the public have quite short memories? Yeah, I think that they'll just push on regardless. I mean, it will figure, it will be the main thing that people like me and, you know, the, the Labour MPs criticising in Parliament, I think, will raise against it. You know, this is the future Afghans. But you can tell how little of a fuck they give by looking at the Home Office's fact sheet on um, asylum, on Afghans trying to come in through ARAP, which is basically, you know, for people who've worked for the UK or British nationals, um, and through the resettlement programme. You look at that fact sheet, and in the fact sheet, it says, look, if you try and come in irregularly, that means basically not using one of our official programs, i.e. not waiting five years before we take another 5,000. If you try to come in on a boat, we will criminalize you according to the provisions of the Nationalities Bill. That's what that bill does. It says if you turn up irregularly, we'll criminalize you. If you turn up from a third country, as anyone from Afghanistan will, they're clearly going to have to go somewhere like Pakistan first. And then we will treat you as a secondary category of asylum seeker, where even if your refugee claim is upheld, in that period, we can put you in punishment accommodation. We can put you in offshore detention. We can prevent you from being reunited with your family. We can prevent you from claiming public funds. And then even if you get your fucking refugee status, every 30 months, we can try and remove you again over and over and over, year after year after year, trapping you in this kind of half-life. So, I mean, they're clear themselves right now, even when we're at the heart, you know, of this little moment, this window where people seem to give a shit about refugees, even now stamped right onto the fact sheet. They're saying, yeah, we're going to press ahead with this. And for those Afghans who try to come in regularly, we're going to try and make their lives very miserable indeed. So I wouldn't expect any U-turns. What if they're cats, dogs or alpacas? Well, then just come right in because the British people are such a compassionate, big hearted nation. Alex is talking, of course, about Trojan horse bills as something with good bits and bad bits. With na- when you're getting to nationality and borders bill, which is a very, you know, home office kind of thing. Is there any horse or is it all Trojans? It's pretty much Trojan throughout that thing. It's not, I mean, the. Yeah, the, the the policing bill is the worst example where, you, you, like Alex is saying, I mean, you're basically taking like some really depraved shit and packing it around some much more positive stuff. But I mean, pretty much that, that bill has very little that, that anyone could 
could welcome in it. Mm, but that's because the attack line on that one is much more straightforward. They will just say Labour are trying to obstruct us from controlling immigra- immigration. Yes, that's, exactly. That, that yeah. will be the attack line. So it doesn't need to be specific things yeah. in the bill. I go, mm-hmm. as Labour leader, I go, damn right we are. <laughs> and that's why I'm not Labour leader. <laughs> Finally, Roz, good old COVID. Life in Britain feels relatively uh, normal again, but of course it's not over yet. Scottish schools uh, open before English ones. What can we learn from the, the rise in infections as a result? Are they large enough to, uh, to make us worry? Well, I mean, infections are always going to go up in schools um, because uh, COVID is endemic, basically, in the community. And so when you're at that stage, clearly they're going to spread in schools. What we know in Scotland is that even with the mask protocol that they have up there, it's not stopped its spreading. And we don't have that mask protocol down here. So the question, I mean, I wish the government would be honest about this because it's been decided not to vaccinate under 16s yet or possibly ever mm. because the um, the council that decides on these things, the JCVI, says that the potential risk from vaccination is higher than the risk from COVID. But if you're going to decide that, you need to say, well, we're going to pursue a policy of herd immunity through uh, through people guessing it. And you have to say, your kids will go back. They'll probably guess it. That's OK. We're cool with that. And of course, they won't say that because they can't say that because, you know, people are still frightened of catching COVID. And this kind of lack of honesty about the consequences of you know, a policy decision is is just so typical of the way the whole school's issue has been handled. It's like, oh, right, we'll just go and hopefully it'll be OK. It's going to be loads of COVID. Of course there is. We're not going to be able to stop it. And, you know, if you're honest with the public and say this is what's going to happen, I think people would be would have a little bit more confidence in the government rather than having this rubbish about schools being safe. And, you know, they're not safe unless you're OK with catching COVID. Moving on to people who have been vaccinated, the first jabs were uh, last December. Those most at risk now have restricted protection. What's the plan for booster jabs? Uh, So the plan is to vaccinate people with weakened immune systems first and then over 65s. And I think that's going to mean that most people get jabs around December time because I think it's going to be about eight months after your second vaccination that seems to be a good idea to have a third one, as far as we can tell from Israel, which is the kind of pioneer in this area because they've vaccinated first, so their booster jabs have been first. So it will, yeah, in in about December or so, elderly people will, will start getting boosted. I'm not sure, of course, whether everyone will get boosted. That will depend on how, you know, how high injections are and how how many people are still catching COVID despite being vaccinated and how bad it is, crucially, and whether they have to be hospitalised. Do you think COVID-19 jabs will become an annual feature like flu vaccines? I mean, are they too... Is it going to be necessary? Is it too costly? Yeah, I think they will. I, I, I don't see why they wouldn't, really. Um, mm. it, it would, Given that we know that now that the immunity that vaccines give does diminish certainly in terms of your likelihood of catching it if not your term in your likelihood of suffering badly from it then yeah, that that is going to be the logical thing to do now it's time for overrated underrated where each week we sort the nandos from the nandons alexandre <laughs> What do you have for us? Okay, so I went on a bit of a journey this week because um, there was a a news story earlier in the week about HGV, some HGV drivers now making as much as sort of your average lawyer. 
And so um, you can see where I might be heading with the overrated, underrated bit. Um, but then I thought, actually, no, that's not fair. You know, as a former lawyer, I don't think it's, um, you know, lawyers that need to be put down in order to elevate HGV drivers. I think both do a fucking hard job with long hours, with, you know, a lot of responsibility on the shoulders that requires a lot of skill and a lot of training. And so I don't think there's anything remotely strange about uh, your average lawyer making as much as uh, an experienced HGV driver. I think it's how it should be. I think that the the social utility derived mm. from those people is directly comparable. Because it's not top lawyers versus top HGV drivers, yeah, is exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. So, so I don't want to take the cheap shot that, you know, lawyers are overrated and HGV drivers are underrated. I think both... HGV drivers and lawyers are underrated. And meanwhile, you have people like, you know, Munira Mirza working away at number 10 at precisely this dividing people between lawyers and HGV drivers and making, you know, four times as much as they do. So I'm going to go HGV drivers and lawyers underrated. Munira Mirza overrated and all the fucking spad lot in number 10. Brilliant. I like the way you went there. It was a twist. Thank you. It was like it was like getting <laughs> Thank M-, you. M. Night Shyamalan to do it. It was a Shyamalan, wasn't it? Like, where's this going? Uh-huh. No, if, if he had done it, then in the end it would be aliens are overrated. Or Manira Mirza was a, was a ghost. <laughs> was an alien. <laughs> Now, the Oh God, What Now inbox is crying out for our tender ministrations. So it's time for But Your Emails. Uh, this week, Little Wayne, probably not his real name, says, I'm thankful to Paul Embry for pointing out that lemons, spring onions, beans and parsley are all yeah. middle class. Luckily, I don't have to eat them anymore because there are none in the shops. What foods do the panel consider to be <laughs> middle class and therefore inedible or possibly even poisonous to working class people? <laughs> Roz. Oh, well, I would have said something like asparagus, but, you know, because clearly it is the definition of a posh vegetable, isn't it? I mean, you have a special way of eating it, apparently. I mean, apparently if you're if you're highly civilised, you know that you can eat asparagus with your fingers and you don't eat it with a knife and fork. What? Yeah. Um, but, I, but, but since most of us don't eat asparagus, I, I, I don't know, it's got to be something like okra, hasn't it? Something otolengi-ish. Um, I wouldn't even say that spices are very, very uh, exclusive these days. Can something I... like razel hanout or sumac. Yeah, sumac. But can I, you see, I think the problem is there is that's middle class, it's sort of middle class white. Mm. Because, of course, okra is not, it's just part yeah. of yeah. many kinds of cooking, as are these sort of spices. And so it's sort of like why you can go into sort of certain grocers and buy enormous sacks of certain spices mm. for the price of like a little little jar in, in Waitrose. So, so I sometimes feel like, you know, if we talk about middle class, last foods, it's like, well, it very much depends on on where you're coming from uh, and, you know, how, you know, what, just what kind of cuisine you're used to. Yeah, I mean, it does. I think that you know, there's some, there's some vegetables that are just 
yeah. If you're on a cardo, which obviously I never am, if you're on a cardo and, and you're looking at the organic range of, you know, so, some some particular organic range where they're charging seven, eight pounds for a melon, something like that, that that's what I would consider mm. middle class. They should be in jail for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> seven, eight pounds for a melon. Um, Alex. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I come from a culture in which all of this stuff is utterly, utterly working class and ordinary. Like the, the middle class fave of halloumi, of the, course, is the, just I mean, normal fare in Greece. <laughs> but, it, you know, so you have millions of people living in this country from everything from a Jamaican to a South Asian Mediterranean background to whom an aubergine is not some sort of luxury middle class thing. It, it It's poor food. It's poverty food. Um and we're not obsessed about class. So, again, this British class obsession of, you know, classifying anything. But if I had to choose a food, I'd go for potatoes, to be entirely honest, because that was the, you know, all the other things when I first came to this country, they were lesser than I could find back home. Potatoes, I was amazed. We literally have like one sort in Greece, and I think in most Mediterranean, you just get one kind of potato. I come here and they're different colours and different sizes, and some are waxy and some are starchy and some are good for <laughs> chips and some are good for munch. That is middle-class madness. Well, it, it says that get some sofa, fucking potatoes in a sack. Some of them will be small, some of them will be big, and some of them will be redder than others. Well, I like those signs they have at kind of Heathrow and, and Dover. It says, welcome to Britain, land of the potato. <laughs> and this is a picture of lots of, of happy, a diverse range of Brits eating different potatoes. Well, it was Sir Walter Raleigh, of course, who brought in the potato in the 17th century. It's not a native British species. And tobacco, well, problematically. Yeah. Well, well, none of these things are native species people get defensive about food you know italians get very protective about the pasta sauces but it, it's literally 150 years ago they started using tomatoes uh, as as an ingredient before that they were considered poisonous a, a decorative plant how many sausage rolls do they have in greece because the main thing i see like when I we don't we don't have sausage rolls them in a british supermarket is standing in like marks and spencers and they're like a what the fuck is that and B, why have you got like 20 different versions? <laughs> no, we don't have any sausage rolls. We have a meat pie. Um, that's about it. But we have loads of different kinds of cheese pies. Cheese pies is oh, where wow. we major. Um, Ian, you are a man of the people uh, who enjoys the McDonald's breakfast offerings. <laughs> um, oh, fuck. But what, um, what, what, what food do you consider to be uh, horribly bourgeois? I know. I mean, anything surely that has to be eaten with cutlery and plates, because proper working class people, you know, would never have the affectation to use cutlery or plates. They just eat with their fucking hands, right? Like <laughs> that's, that's they're just that a chromosome away from a trough. <laughs> but as, as Ross points out, actually, it's it's posh people who are just who are eating asparagus with their hands like fucking animals. <laughs> <laughs> You're using your pita bread to scoop up your yeah. What about yours, Doria? Do you have one? I don't believe in assigning class to food. I just feel like, come on, man. There's all kinds of, uh, particularly like I said, when you're crossing cuisines, and there's just all kinds of like, if you live in, I mean, obviously, I do live yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. London, and all these kind of grocers, you can just get this amazing sort of you know stuff that can, can seem quite fancy and exotic, but is like 
really cheap. Yeah. And really nice. The only, so the only middle class food is quinoa because as soon as you say it properly, you rev- you sound awful. <laughs> you, you know, and some, yourself. Yeah, and sometimes I just want to kind of call it quinoa <laughs> so that people don't know that I know that it's quinoa. <laughs> and I won't eat it and I hate saying the word out loud. There's a very funny uh, thing in BBC's Ghosts. Uh, that illustrates that you know where food belongs is a function of geography and time where uh, you know the 70s ghost um, is talking about a buffet and says was there cheese and pineapple and the Victorian ghost says pineapple we're rich but we're not royalty (laughs) (laughs) I've just been reminded of a really good cheesy pie that I had when I was in Derbyshire a few months ago and it's like it's it's cheese and potato pie it's called a homoty pie it is so tasty it is just like carb carb massive carb heaven and you can eat it for lunch and you'll be dead to the world by two o'clock it just totally knocks you out I would like to you turn it into a sandwich yeah. Yes, but which variety just carve it up one level. But which variety of potato do you put in it? Um, I think kind it's of King work. Edward probably or something. Wouldn't it be quite a sort of crumbly kind of? Known, one that, one that Paul Embry would eat. Are, I still don't know what they're all like. I'll I'll teach I, you. I'll I, take you out. I literally for potato buy the, the <laughs> sort of perfectly imperfectly the misshapen ones that are about ten p a kilo. No, we'll have a we'll have a great we'll have a great potato tasting night. It'll be it'll be brilliant. We'll invite Paul Embry along. <laughs> and that's the show. Thank you to Roz. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, and Alex. Thank you very much. On the extra bit this week, we'll be talking Gove and dancing. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, "Demon Is a Monster" by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. <laughs> Thanks from me to Cliff Fry, Ryan Foster, Stuart Bark, Alan O'Mahony, Sheila Ryan and Tony Lloyd. Hello and thanks from me to Michael Hook, Hannah Dunhowry, LJ Hutchins, Scary Biscuits, Yuha Lapalainen and Gina Allen. And thanks from me to David Derbyshire, Marja Kingma, Ian McCracken, Michelle Keys, Paul Cope, and Chris. And thanks from me to Daniel Flynn, Peter Tarrington, Paula Broadbent, Anne Moyer, Sue Mendes, and Martin Brent. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor, Alex Andreev, and Ian Dunn. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? It's a Podmasters production. This week on The Extra Bit, video emerged over the weekend of Michael Gove cutting loose in an Aberdeen nightclub, allegedly after attempting to blag his way out of paying the five quid entrance fee because he was the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. Don't you know who he is? (laughs) Ian, it seems like not so long ago the press would have gone to town over a minister on the town. Is the general reaction, which is sort of fairly benign mirth and memes, uh, quite a nice sign that we can accept more sort of messy human behaviour from top politicians, even one who many of us have no reason to uh, feel warmly towards. I kind of, so I hope it is. I always sort of felt like 
there was only ever one conceivable good thing that could come out of this administration. And that's <laughs> that dancing. because Boris Johnson works, and that's not just that ministers get to get twatted in a Scottish nightclub, but it's that because Boris Johnson, you know, has no standards because his personal life is incredibly messy. And because of their instinctive support for him, the Tory press don't go for him. There is a chance, a thin chance, that that could become this kind of new, could, could sort of be like a precedent. So that actually suddenly politicians' private lives and politicians, you know, maybe doing something a little bit out of the ordinary would no longer be this thing that you could legitimately attack them for. Now, that is all premised on the idea that the right-wing press isn't just drowning in the most abject kind of hypocrisy. Because, of course, if they are, they'll just fucking flip and then attack Labour ministers for it in the future, you know, if they end up doing it. But there is at least a chance of it. And so I sort of think, I mean, this is a a fucking first. I don't think I've ever said these words before. But if there is a good thing to come from Boris Johnson being prime minister, it might be like a less judgmental attitude towards people's personal and private lives. That was a trailer for the bonus edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. It really does help us keep going. And don't forget our new weekly mini cast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week.